for a, a series in Ephesians, I think for about two or three months, as I've, as I've thought, where would God have us go next as a church? Where would God have us spend our time? And uh, this book has just overwhelmingly impressed my heart with its character and with what I believe we need to know and believe as a church. Uh, I've spent about the last month reading and writing and just digging into this book each and every day. Um, Some of you have been tracking on Facebook. You've seen my progress in working on the the translation and you've encouraged me and and I I just, I appreciate that. Uh, I am so excited to read these 14 verses to you, uh, the first 14 verses of this book. And I just, let me challenge you in, in your daily walk uh, to, be, to be reading ahead. Uh, you can read this book. If you wake up an hour earlier and you just sit down and you read this book tomorrow, start in verse 1, you read all the way to the end, you'll have probably 15 or 20 minutes left over to brew coffee, you know, and to get to get started on what you need to do for the day. This, this will not take you long to read. Um, but as I've read through it over the past weeks and months, I have just been blessed over and over and over again with just new understanding and new encouragement over what God is doing in and through the church as he fills each and every one of us with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I'm so excited to read to you. Before Lori went down off the platform, she handed me a note. And so, as is our practice, we are going to pray for uh, God to bless the message. Uh, But I also want to take another moment to pray uh, for her sister, Beth. Uh, Her surgery to remove her cancer is on Tuesday. It's going to be an all-day event. She will be in the hospital in recovery for three days following that. Um, Lori and her sister are very close. So I just encourage you uh, not only to keep that in prayer, and I'll be sending out a reminder email um, later with with an update, um, but let me just, let me encourage you to keep Lori in prayer and Beth as well. Pray for the doctor. So we're going to, we're going to pray for her as well after we, um, after we read God's word together. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, I thank you for this blessed beginning to this book. Lord, both in the blessing that it has been to study these words and to spend time in your presence contemplating what it is that you said through your servant Paul so many years ago, but also in the beginning of what I believe has the possibility of being a season in your word that could transform our hearts and minds, our understanding of what it means to be known by you and be blessed in Christ. And also, which could transform our expectations of what it means to be a church. What it means to expect you to work through our church. What it is that you seek to do in and through not only the church that fills the world, Lord, each assembled body of believers, but also this individual church on this particular street corner, in this particular town, on this peninsula in 2010. Father, may our hearts and minds be challenged and encouraged as we look through your word. Father, we lift up our our sister Lori and her sister Beth, and we pray for these doctors who will be doing their operation. Father, we pray that that the surgery would be successful, that they would remove every last bit of cancer. But Father, we also pray for Lori and for Beth and for Brad and the children, that through this surgery and through this suffering, Father, that you would remove every shred of doubt, every shred of anxiety, and that they would trust in your sovereignty and your grace and your mercy and your love as you accomplish your purpose through this trial. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now, challenge us, encourage us, and transform us by your word, we pray. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we approach the study of the book of Ephesians Uh, this morning, I'd like to begin the book by looking at the first two verses. Um, I had had thought we could cover 14 verses, but those of you who know me well uh, or have known me for any amount of time, you know that 14 verses, uh, especially in Paul, would not only be a stretch, but we'd probably be here for three or four hours. And so um, I, we, we are just, we're not going to get through it. We're going to get through two verses this morning. That's, that's what we're going to do. And so this morning, as we turn to Ephesians, before we dig in to the meat of this long, large blessing, I'm just going to move that. There we go. Um, in verses 3 through 14, I just want to begin 
by analyzing and examining what's going on in these first two verses by asking three questions. These are the three questions. The first question is, who is Paul? Because I know that in a group this large, that there are some of you who will say, who is Paul and why should we listen to him? I thought we were here to hear about Jesus. And second, the second question is, who are the saints in Ephesus and why do we care about a letter written to them? What can we learn from an old, dusty letter that is 2,000 years old? And then finally, what is the message that Paul brings to the Ephesians? So those are the three questions that we're going to answer. And we're just going to jump right in. The letter begins by answering the question, who is Paul? Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Who is Paul? Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. You may hear um, in, in your past experience, you may have driven past an apostolic church or you've, you've heard of St. Paul the Apostle, and, and that gives us an idea of a man who is holy. Paul is often portrayed as in prayer, in stained glass windows. Many times he has a sword because of his, of his apostolic ministry of proclaiming the word of God far and wide. But that image... While it gives an impression maybe of who Paul became by the end of his life, it doesn't give an accurate reflection of who Paul was when God found him and arrested him. Paul was a wretched man who opposed the church for what he believed was the glory of God. Paul, in the book of Acts, appears first as a man named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church. After Jesus was raised from the dead and, his, uh, and he ascended into heaven, his apostles began to preach and teach throughout Jerusalem. You can read about this in the first chapters of the book of Acts. The church began to grow, and thousands of people were flooding into this new church, believing the message of the gospel. And many people, many of the Jews who saw People becoming Christians, leaving behind temple worship and trusting in this resurrected man, Jesus Christ. They believed that the church needed to be crushed because this man, Jesus, made himself God. And so Paul began to persecute the church. He held or watched over the pile of coats. People took off their coats and laid them down. And Paul watched their stuff so nobody would steal anything while a group of angry people went and killed the deacon, Stephen. Paul approved of what happened because he believed that it glorified God to put people who opposed God to death. Paul traveled around the region around Jerusalem, breaking up churches, dragging people out of their homes, imprisoning pastors and leaders, and destroying lives and reputations. He was a wretched, wretched man. But on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, on his way to this city to drag people out of their homes, to break up the church, he encountered on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ who confronted him and asked him, why are you persecuting me? Paul had no idea. 
He had no idea what to say because he didn't even know who this man was. He said, who are you, Lord? You're in front of me. You're bright. You're shiny. You're obviously very powerful. Everyone is, is, is in awe of your strength and, and, and your, your power. Who are you? And I will stop persecuting you. And he says, I am Jesus. And at that moment, Paul's life was transformed. God called him not to destroy the church, not to oppose the work of the church, but to build the church. Paul was shown amazing grace. The amazing grace of God being commissioned to build the church. And so we see Paul is called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Isn't it just like God in his nature to take one who opposes, who destroys, who tears down? And when he encounters this person with his grace and his love and forgiveness, to turn them into one who is now to build and to promote and to encourage the church. Paul teaches about apostles, that the whole church is being built. Each individual part is a member of the church. Think about a body. Each member Each individual in the church is like a cell of the whole body. Peter uses the analogy of stones, each Christian being a stone in the holy temple. Paul teaches that the whole church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles. Those whom Jesus has called to give a defining word to the church, to testify to the fact that he came, he lived, He died, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to sit at the right hand of God in glory and honor. And so when we hear the word that somebody is an apostle, we ought to see them as the foundation of the church. The words that they speak, we're to build our lives on them. Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and that the apostles are the foundation. Paul has a trust, a teaching, that the church needs to hear and pay attention to. If you look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that there is a mystery. He says, when you read this letter, when you read the letter to the Ephesians, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The trust that's been given to Paul involves a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something to be solved, right? It's not call Columbo and Peter Falk will come out and and solve the, the crime or the murder. It's not go and find Sherlock Holmes and he with his perceptive powers will figure out what no one else can do. That's not what a mystery is. A mystery is not something to be solved in the scripture, but it's something that can only be solved by the revelation of God. And it has now been solved. It's been revealed to us. The mystery that Paul has been entrusted with is called the mystery of Christ. The fact that each and every human being can be at peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That mystery being made known by the power of God of the Holy Spirit. 
We learn in Ephesians 4.11 that apostles are a gift to the church to build up the church, to equip the church for the work of service that each member, that's all of us, that we might go and serve others, proclaiming the gospel to them so that they might know it and be saved. That's who Paul is. And so when we read the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, when we look at these words, we shouldn't think, well, they're not in red, and so they're, they're secondary, right? The words of Jesus being in red, and what Jesus said is really important. We ought to think these are the very words of God written to Christians in 2010. And if we take them, for what they are, the very words of God, and we write them on our hearts and our minds. We will know the very will of God for our lives and know what God is doing in the church today because it's Paul's task to equip us that we might be faithful. Second question, who are the saints in Ephesus? The answer is in the second part of verse 1. Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's talk briefly about this ministry to this city of Ephesus. Paul travels there for a brief period of time on his first missionary journey. He took three missionary journeys. Uh, Paul shows up in Ephesus for a short period of time. He, he arrives there. He begins to teach, but he does not have time to, to spend there. He's got to go somewhere else. But he leaves two of his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, behind. Paul desired to preach in this city and to plant the church there because it was a rich city. It was the commercial center of the Roman province of Asia. They were wealthy. Coins from Ephesus have been found all over what was once the Roman Empire. You can find these little coins, and they've got an image of the goddess Artemis or Diana. Same, same thing, whether you're Roman or, or Greek, you just use a different name. And they find these coins with this little phrase, uh, Diana Ephesus or Artemis Ephesus, all over the Roman Empire because they made tons and tons of money. These were rich people. And it was also a religious center. The giant statue of Artemis supposedly had fallen out of heaven, which I believe means it was a meteorite. Many, many scholars agree that it was a giant chunk of rock that, that came out of the sky, and they carved this thing and overlaid it with gold and silver until it was the envy of other cities. The, the temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world, destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt again, better and better each time. This was a place where people traveled, each and every year to worship the goddess Artemis. And so Paul, thinking strategically, thinking about proclaiming the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I've got to go to that city, but he can't stay there long. The famous preacher of the gospel, Apollos, shows up there, and he is preaching a message, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and Priscilla and Aquila see him preaching the gospel, but they, but they realize he's not preaching the full message. He's not, he's not preaching the fullness of the gospel message, so they take him aside, and they instruct him, and he now goes and preaches in a, in a greater and fuller way. Paul meets misguided disciples of John, 12 men who heard about the baptism of John, and who realized that Judaism is, is dead, that it, that, that it cannot save them. 
but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And he teaches them and baptizes them, and they're full of the Holy Spirit. They begin to prophesy. This is, this is his early ministry, but he's got to go. So he comes back like he promised. Goes back to the synagogue, begins to teach there, and the warm reception that he initially had turns cold. He's kicked out of the synagogue, and he takes up residence in this place called the School of Tyrannus. I love the name of that. I'd love to work at a school called the School of Tyrannus. It sounds terrible and scary, doesn't it? What a cool name. And it says that Paul made many disciples here. He preached for almost three years. Luke, sorry, Acts. Luke is writing in Acts 19, verse 10. It says that all the inhabitants of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What Paul was teaching was being in turn taught and taught again and taught again. And people were hearing this message, some following, some rejecting, but everybody was hearing of it. There were incredible miracles going on. There were healings, demonic exorcism. And it's at this point that a local group of Miracle workers or problem solvers called the sons of Sceva, a man named Sceva and his seven sons, Sceva, 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 and Sceva. Um, they, they, were, they were trying to cast a demon out of a man, and, uh, and they were trying all their, all their tricks and all their techniques, and, their, and so they try this, and it doesn't work, and then they try this, and it doesn't work, and they'd heard about Paul, and they'd heard about this gospel, and so they... they they speak to him, this, to this man who's possessed by a demon, and they say, in the name of Jesus, we command you to come out. And this is what the demon says. I know who Jesus is, but who are you? And he beats up the sons of Sceva, and they all run out. And it's at this point, Luke says, that people realize that there was power in the name of Jesus, and an incredibly massive repentance begins. People begin to throw away their magical uh, books and their idols Luke, so impressed by this, tallies up what he believes is the value of these things. 50,000 days wages. That's a massive amount of money. An incredible repentance takes place. And it's at this point that Demetrius, a man who manufactures silver idols of Artemis, begins to whip up the religious manufacturers, the people who make idols, the people who make magic talismans and things, and, they, and then he gets them into a frenzy and says, Paul is dragging down the dignity of our goddess Artemis, and they come after him. They have this tremendous mob, and they spend two hours shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They want to kill Paul. Paul takes advantage of the scene by preaching the gospel. But then he leaves because the temperatures just become too hot for him there in Ephesus. They begin to plant churches. Paul visits the elders again in Acts chapter 20 at Miletus. He writes 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus. And Ephesus receives a letter from the risen Lord Jesus, written by the apostle John in the book of Revelation. It's a very significant city in the New Testament. I would say, quite possibly, it could be the most significant city in the New Testament because so many interactions take place. So many books are addressed to Ephesus or written in Ephesus. 
Why all that introduction? Why is this significant to you this morning? For one reason. The people who are receiving this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, they lived in a time and a place just like ours. Sure, they don't have iPods that have 800 songs on them, right? They don't have the ability to pay their bills while sitting at home. They don't have the ability to drive places at 65 miles per hour or to go on destination vacations. We are more technologically advanced. We've got better food, right? Our food is probably healthier. Um, we've got better drinking water. But they lived in the midst of religious pluralism. There were so many gods to choose from. Who knew what was right? Persecution lied just around the corner. The ability to worship, folks, freely as we choose without government interference is, is, is kind of, it's a new idea. It's not something that, that has been around for very long, just 200 years in America. In our current social climate, it could go away in a heartbeat. And these people lived with the realization that any day the religious manufacturers and sellers of goods could turn on them and begin to persecute them. And they lived in a city of tremendous doctrinal uncertainty. There were so many gods and so many religions and so many beliefs that, that people had a hard time sorting them out. Who is the supreme God? Is it Artemis, who, who is sovereign over all of creation? Or is it the Lord God? And they needed knowledge. They needed to know. What did they need to know? Paul is going to teach them three things in this letter, which we're going to spend a, a whole lot of time unpacking. Um, and so I just want to summarize them. But I want to point out one thing. Paul is overwhelmingly glad in this letter. Paul knows the doctrinal uncertainty that fills the city. And you know what? You've heard me speak about this many, many times about, what, about what's being proclaimed in many churches as the gospel and, and, and how that should grieve us and, 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 and just how we should, we, should, we should be upset about that and we should strive for greater doctrinal purity in the church. But Paul's not upset. Paul is overwhelmingly positive and excited in this letter. Because the Ephesians, they know that they need to know things. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me, let me just put that thought on hold for a minute. What are, what are the things that he's going to teach in this letter? First thing that they need to know is they needed to know who they were. And so what we will see in the first three chapters of this book is that in Christ, the Ephesians and us by extension, they are blessed and seated. Paul instructs these extremely rich people the wealth that they possessed in Christ. So we're going we're gonna to take a, a deep, long look at who we are in Christ. We are blessed by God, verse 3 says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We possess wealth 
in Christ. Second, these people needed to be affirmed and instructed in the way in which they should walk. We live in confusing times. There are more options available to us than any people that have ever lived. But things were probably equally confusing for them back then. How do we handle the temptations and, and, the, and the questionable things in our lives? How should we walk? Paul spends all of chapter 4 and chapter 5 explaining how a Christian should walk in the world, how they should walk as a child of light, how they should walk as one who's beloved by God, how they should walk in wisdom, and how they should walk in purity. And he details this extensively to the Ephesians, and we'll see all that. And then third, he teaches them that they need to know how to wage war against the devil and against the spiritual powers that are waging war against them. And in the final section of the book, he teaches them how to stand. So we're going to see, as Christians, that the way in which we're to live our lives is to sit and to walk and to stand. Paul develops these ideas extensively throughout the letter. Now I want to point out Something interesting that Paul says about the Ephesians here. He calls them saints. Saints. This, is, this should be interesting to us. Because when you drive past a church, like the, the, the church of St. Paul the Apostle, or you, you interact with, with people who have different religious beliefs, you find out that a lot of people worship saints. Or they're impressed by saints. Or they pray to saints. Right? And they, and they, they believe that by, by communicating with this person who is who's, um, more holy than they are or who lived a, a, a life that had miracles in it, that, that somehow that this helps them. Now, this is interesting. The word saints. The word is literally translated holy ones. Holy ones. This word, holy, is applied in chapter 3, verse 5, to the apostles, where we learn that God has not made known the mystery of Christ in other generations, but he's now revealed it through his holy apostles, which is what we might expect. Paul, St. Paul, the apostle, is a holy man, and therefore he reveals deep and mighty things of God. We also find the word holy applied to the church. In chapter 2, verse 21, Paul is talking again about the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole church being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so apostles are holy and the temple of the church that God is building is holy. It's also applied to the spirit who is literally in the scriptures many times called the spirit of holiness. We know him today. It's easier probably just to say the Holy Spirit in whom Ephesians 1.13 teaches us we're sealed and we're instructed not to grieve by our sins. And so these are all things we, we expect. Apostles are holy. The church is holy. The spirit is holy. A holy church with holy saints. Paul points out to us in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ is serving his bride, the church, by washing her with the water of the word that she might be holy and blameless before him. The church's destiny, the whole assembled church, 
is that they might be holy. But it's not just a word that's applied to select and special individuals in the church. The idea of holiness is not just the the destiny of the church to be be holy, the exceptional ones, and one day we'll get to heaven and people will will see the holy church and it'll be like, this is the A team, right? And then here's the B team. These are the less holy people that, that we keep hidden. You know, these are the non-sainted people. These are, you know, this is, this is uh, Bob, and, and this is Frank, and, and this is Jill, and this is Jane, and they sweep the streets in heaven, right? As opposed to the Apostle Paul, who sits right next to Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. You know, he's really holy, and these people are, are less holy. That's not the way the Bible presents holiness. Holiness is not just a corporate destiny, the destiny of of the assembled people, but it's an individual one as well. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says that God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, the church, but individuals should be holy and blameless before him in love. Paul reminds them of this destiny over and over and over again when he calls them saints. When Paul speaks to the Christians in Ephesus, he is speaking to the youngest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the one who's known Christ the least amount of time to the one who's served him faithfully for years, for one who is new in the faith to one who is old in the faith. He calls them holy ones or saints. Nine times Paul uses this word to describe the people in Ephesus. Let me encourage you, Christian, here this morning, that this is the way God sees you in the gospel. When God looks at you, he sees one of his holy ones. Someone who has been sanctified and purified by his grace and by the peace that he's accomplished in Christ on the cross. Paul is overwhelmingly positive in this letter. Why? Because he's writing to the holy ones of God. And this is all work that God has done for them. So what are they called to do in Christ? Notice how he describes them. One, he says that they're in Ephesus. Second, he says that they are faithful in Christ Jesus. What does God call us to do this morning as we begin a series in Ephesians? He calls us to what Paul commends about the Ephesians, and he commends their faithfulness. Faithfulness is an interesting word in the Bible. Faithfulness is is applied to God, and it is applied to Jesus, and it is applied often to the promises of God. God is faithful. He does what he promises, and his promises are faithful. They are trustworthy. We can read a verse together as a church, like Romans 8.28, that God has ordained that he will accomplish all things for good to those whom he loves, and and who are called according to his purpose, and we can say, yes, that is a promise made to us by God. 
And we know that everything that happens, whether we deem it good or evil, that God is working that out for our good if we're called in Christ. We can trust the promise because God is faithful and because the promise is trustworthy. But he calls us to be faithful, to believe what he promises. As we hear his words, to live as if each and every word that we hear is true. You may hear that word this morning from Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. And you may say, but what about this situation in my Christian sister's life? What about this difficulty I'm facing at work in my life? Do you believe that God's word to you is true? Do you trust in that word? Are you faithful to that word? God calls us to live as though his words are true. And so because these believers were faithful, they believed God's word, they received it, Paul is ecstatic to write to them a letter unfolding the grace and the gift of God to them. And he sums it up in his greeting. The whole message of the book is right here in verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the message that Paul brings to them? Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is goodness and kindness that we do not deserve. God's grace is shown most fully that he accomplishes salvation on our behalf out of the richness of his grace. His grace sends his son to the cross. That though we have committed innumerable sins against him, we have sinned so much that that the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and by nature we are children who deserve God's wrath against us. Though that's our fallen condition, God, out of the riches of his mercy, sends his son to die and be punished on our behalf. Every sin you've ever committed inflicted on Christ so that you can walk away free from your sins. That is the grace of God toward us. We're saved by grace through faith and not because of anything that we've done. Paul calls us later on in the the book to believe that we're called to extend that grace to others through the spiritual gifts that he's given to us, through the words that we speak and most especially in the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul brings a message of grace, but grace that only comes because of the peace that God has accomplished on our behalf. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Jesus is our peace, who has broken down every wall between us and our God. And he's also broken down every wall between all kinds of classes of people. He has taken the Jews and the Gentiles and he's made them into one new man in the church. There's a peace that comes from the Holy Spirit that binds us all together. And most telling, most informing of our mission is the fact that the church has been given a peace in the form of the gospel which we're called to share with all people. In the armor of God, we're called to put on the footwear of the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
So what is the message of Ephesians that we are going to be exploring? The riches of God's great grace toward us through the peace that he's accomplished on the cross. Paul's going to teach us over the next few months about the wealth that we have in Christ. How we're to walk and how we're to wage war against spiritual powers that war against us. He's going to teach us to sit and to walk and to stand. Let me encourage you this morning. If you're here and you're a believer and you're thinking, what is it all about? Who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? Let me just encourage you that all that we need to know we learn by looking at the cross and by understanding what God has accomplished through the cross on our behalf, what we are in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're trusting in church attendance or your own goodness or, or gifts that you've given, if you're trusting in these things to save you, Ephesians would challenge you that you're not saved through what you do. You're not saved through your works. You're saved by the gift of God that God accomplishes on your behalf. And all you need to do is trust in that grace. And he will rob you of your sins and give you a great blessing of righteousness and you can be saved. A message of grace and peace from an apostle of Jesus Christ about the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are connected and faithful to Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we draw to a close this morning. Father, I thank you for each and every person in this room. Father, I thank you for the blessing of this local assembly. Father, I thank you that you have called a diverse group of people here this morning, Lord, some male and some female, some who have been religious, it seems, almost from birth, being raised in church from the earliest age to those who perhaps are in church for the very first time this morning. Lord, from those who have been walking faithfully with you for years and those perhaps who are seeking to get back in connection with you. Lord, there are those here who are black and those who are white. There are old and young. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a word and you have given us a Savior who addresses each and every one of us at our point of need. Father, we are all dead, like Ephesians says, in sins and trespasses. And we all need a, we all need a gift of grace from you. We thank you that we don't need to wonder. We don't need to ask, will you forgive me? Because you have shown it plainly. That salvation is accomplished through the death of Jesus on the cross, Lord. And so if there is someone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that they would trust not in their own goodness. That they would trust not in works of righteousness. But that they would trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross who takes all sins upon himself and purchases peace by his death. I pray that they would trust in the fullness of that this morning. And Father, I pray for each and every believer who's here this morning, each and every person who's received this message. Father, we thank you that you have made us holy. Lord, that you view us 
as holy. Even though we lack so many things, you have, you have purified us, Father, in your presence, and you've made us adequate in Christ. Father, may we hear clearly that all we need to do to respond to your grace is to be faithful and to trust each and every promise that you've made to us. And so I pray, Father, as we close, but also as we begin a series in this book, I pray that we would hear each and every word that comes from you and that we would say, yes, Lord, we believe it by your grace and for your glory. We pray that you would build us as a church as we walk through this word. Father, build us in you. Build us up in Christ. Do with us what you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.